Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Spring break, summer vacations, possibly the end of the most acute phase of COVID. And here is where we find ourselves. Hello again, I am Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and longest running source of Carolina business policy and public affairs seen each and every week across North and South Carolina for the last 30 years. Thank you for supporting us. We will start our discussion as the summer and spring months start to unfold here. And later on, after almost two years in the job, mostly during COVID, the president and CEO of North Carolina Blue Cross Blue Shield joins us again, Dr. Tunde Satunde. And we start right now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Leslie Boney of the Institute for Emerging Issues, Carl Blackstone from the Columbia Chamber of Commerce, and special guest, Dr. Tunde Sotunde, President and CEO of Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina. Well, happy spring, and in some cases, happy spring break. We're glad to have you back on the program. Leslie, welcome. Carl, welcome. Leslie, uh, you get the first pitch, sir. So, Leslie, uh, because of hostilities, of course, between UK, Ukraine and Russia and the tragedy that has unfolded there, we have seen more than a spike in energy prices. We have seen what seems exponential, but will, feel, will be felt at the pump on personal balance sheets and corporate balance sheets. Are we, have we gone past a tipping point now when it comes to cost of living somewhere in here? How does this affect us? I think it's gonna have subtle effects everywhere and, and more obvious effects in a lot of places. So you'll start to see it you know, in a couple of weeks. And in some cases you're already seeing it on your grocery store shelves. Uh, when it comes time to order the next laptop for your office, uh, you're gonna notice those prices are going up. Um, when you get your next heating and cooling bill, uh, you'll see that there's a change in price there. And I do think I do think there's a ripple effect that that comes throughout the economy as uh, first gas and oil prices go up, and then there are other energy prices that that uh, people use to substitute. And so there's a, a greater demand for energy all across the board, and that causes increases in prices that everybody can see. Carl, I know you're not a, a tourism expert per se, but you know a little bit about it. Certainly the Carolinas are both single largest industry is tourism. South Carolina, absolutely. Beaches, et cetera. Uh, for summer and spring, is this going to be a real headwind for that, for that kind of travel and that kind of activity? Well, I, 
I agree with, with Leslie. I mean, it's just got a ripple effect. And so when you see this on, high gas prices and higher cost inflation, the highest rate in 40 years, I mean, on the backs of COVID, on the back of supply chain issues and, and a workforce issue. So it is really a perfect storm, if you will, of not great things from the economy. But I, I think it, in if you I think there's still a pent up demand for getting out and doing things. So I think it will have a huge impact. Um, but I think for those, it's not going to deter people from having significant vacation plans. What it will do is going to cost a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's going to have to raise their prices and they're not doing it once or twice a year. They're going to do it once or twice a month now. And it's just for the unseeable future. That's what we're going to, have to deal with. Let's, let's pivot, gentlemen, and let's talk about education. Here we are two years now past uh, the first uh, emergence of COVID in, in the U.S. and in the economy. Leslie, there have been several reports of late around educational attainment for 2021, educational achievement for 2021. Um, when, when we look back, has it been, two questions, has it been an educational crisis from that point of view? And... Um, have we seen a real loss in educational attainment? To the second question, I think there's undeniable loss. And, you know, depending on which study you look at from which time you're seeing, you're seeing four to eight months of learning loss. And uh, if you look at some of the past things that have happened in the world where we can look back and, and figure out what happened longitudinally, you'll see that those uh, little bits of learning loss tend to compound themselves over time. So, you know, what starts off as maybe four months of learning loss, the next year it may may end up being six months. And some people may get lost in the shuffle. And so I think it's the kind of thing we need to really pay attention to on a K through 12 level, on a university level. The challenge is um, that there were people who delayed and didn't go. So you saw community college um, enrollment in particular go down uh, in some universities, things decline, not at NC State where I work and not at some of the others, but you did see people delaying uh, going on to higher education as well. Carl, same question. Has this been uh, not a mortal wound, but certainly a critical wound to education in the Palmetto State? I mean, absolutely not. I mean, as a parent, I've got kids both in college and in in K-12 and we've seen the disruption, right? And so the long-term impact is going to be significant. We've got to get a handle on it. Uh, costs are still going to be an issue uh, for higher ed and uh, the technical college or community college system. So we've got to figure out a new path forward. And also, uh, I think we're going to have to change um, what our goals are. And what I mean by that is, what do businesses need to function? What do they need to uh, have in, in their employee? You know, some people have arbitrary guidelines for hiring. And, and I think we, with the supply chain and, and supply and demand of, of workforce today, I think we've got to do a hard look at ourselves and find out what we truly need to be successful in the business world and go out and find those kids. Um, and we've got to backfill that with, with some educational attainment issues as well. These, this issue, of course, is, is, is indivisible with the idea of producing uh, men and women that are ready for a workforce. Leslie, educa- um, educational attainment goes on to become labor participation, hopefully, 
and that's been under fire. Um, so how critical do you think that is? And is, is, are we past a tipping point on labor participation? Well, significant declines in North Carolina in particular, but also in South Carolina and the percentage of people who say that they want to work. So there's a labor force participation rate that has uh, is sort of the accepted uh, proxy for how many people are out there that want to work, either are working or say they want to work. And the decline in North Carolina is such that if we were at the same rate as we were pre-pandemic, we would have an additional 360,000 people available to work. In South Carolina, if they were at the same level as pre-pandemic, there would be 100,000 more people available to work. In the absence of that, then we've got a situation where we're actually upside down in terms of job seekers and jobs available. So in North Carolina, 1.2 jobs for every one person looking for work. And as we're trying to explode out of this pandemic and move, move on to endemic or wherever we, we're heading that stage, uh, we've got to figure out a way to um, get more people interested in working. And Carl talked about some of the, we've got to maybe think about unusual people that we haven't historically been recruiting. Some people who might fail an initial drug test or some people who might have a criminal record or some people who might have childcare issues. We better figure out a way to solve those problems in a, in a real way if we're gonna turn this economy around as quickly as we want to. Carl, how do you address that? Well, two things. Um, I, I think one, the, the cooling off of the economy, the rising uh, rates, but also the conflict that's happening in, in Ukraine right now is probably not good for the market. Uh, which has a positive impact on the workforce, quite frankly. You're going to see less people getting out. Yeah, labor market, you're not going to see as many people retire because the market volatility is just crazy. Yeah. So I think that's going to help stem some of that. The other piece is we've got to look at immigration, and this is going to be a significant call to arms for our members of the congressional delegations to figure out some path forward. Uh, we Birth rates are declining uh they declined in the Great Recession. Those folks are graduating in 25, 26. Uh, so we're going to see a deeper decline in, in labor pool starting in a couple of years from now. What's the answer? We 360,000, 100,000 in, in South Carolina, we can't make that up. So we've got to figure out uh, either invest a whole lot in uh, technology or we need to fix an immigration issue. And so it's going to be a painful few years until we can figure this out. Let's bring this idea of technology in. We've got about a minute and a half left before we bring our guest in. Leslie, the idea of technology was going to be the savior of the COVID connectivity problem. And I say that it, with, with the idea that broadband access was the thing that we were going to deploy, are deploying, um, we found out, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to get to a question here, but we found out that the bottleneck ended up being well, who owns the poles that this fiber is hanging on? Will we get past this bottleneck? And would you forecast that broadband will be in the Carolinas like electric generation? It is going to be in every home and every community sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think the federal stimulus funds are going to ensure that we get to probably 95, 98% penetration eventually for availability of broadband. The bigger problem from my standpoint, is that once we build it, people aren't coming. So if we build it, will they come? Well, right now in North Carolina, a quarter of people who have access to broadband aren't subscribing. 
And if you think about the potential that that has, if we could get more people subscribing, not just for children learning at home, but for adults trying to learn at home or people trying to work from home, that could overcome some of the spatial challenges we're having, where there are people available in one place, but their jobs in another place. And if we can find a way to make that available and adopted, then I think we have a real chance to uh, address some of these short-term labor shortage problems we okay. have. Our guest was thrust into a triage mode when he started his job back in the summer of 2020, right smack dab in the panic of the COVID health crisis. We welcome back to the program the President, Chief Executive Officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, Dr. Tunde Satunde. Your Honor, or, or Doctor, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us again. Great, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. So let's put it in context. You got the job at a very critical time, and now you've been immersed in this health crisis as a, uh, not just a payer, sir, but leadership in healthcare. Has there been any single event that has affected health and, and, and healthcare like we've seen with COVID that you can think of? No, Chris, you know, um, this pandemic has been an unprecedented uh, public health uh, crisis to say the least. You know, the, the last pandemic on record that I recall was the 2009 H1N1 uh, influenza pandemic but it was nowhere close to um, what we have experienced over the last two years now and counting uh, with this COVID pandemic. Prior to that, I believe the uh, 1918 <laughs> influenza pandemic uh, was probably the other pandemic on record. So, you know, in terms of um, the last 75 to 100 years, I think it's pretty much um, the uh, influenza pandemic that's, uh, you know, anything that we could uh, draw any correlations to. Uh, but again, what we have been dealing with is totally unprecedented. Uh, Dr. Satunde, you, you know, at the beginning of it, and even up until the, a few months ago, it, it felt as, wish, as if we were in a, still in a triage mode, that we were reacting, flight or flight. Do you, do you get the sense we're past that now in general? I do. I do. I, I really believe that, uh, that there appears now to be light finally uh, at the end of the tunnel. It's not over, you know, by any stretch. Mm -hmm. But I, 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 I think we're now beginning to start to transition from a pandemic uh, to more of an endemic uh, state with, with respect to uh, the viral replication, the viral surges, spikes and so on. And that's typically what happens. You know, when you have these pandemics, you know, when you have epidemics, you know, over a period of time, people develop herd immunity, you know, uh, people get vaccinated, which is uh, what has happened, uh, at least for us here in the United States. We have one of the highest vaccination rates, um, at least in, in the Western world. And um, what you tend to see is that the virus tends to burn out over time. Mm -hmm. It loses its ability to replicate and then it just becomes endemic and we leave, live with the virus. It's no different with how we are living with the flu virus. Even there are other strains of coronavirus uh, that we live with today and have, have done so for many years. Leslie. Dr. Satunde, one of the things that Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina did 
most quickly was to make an amazing pivot early in the pandemic to begin covering telehealth. Yes. And over the first year, I think I saw this right, the, the increase in telehealth visits that you covered was 7,500%. I'm wondering as we move toward an endemic stage, whether you think telehealth will continue to be supported in the same way by both insurance companies, but also embraced by primary care physicians. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Leslie, I don't think there's a question about that anymore. Telehealth has, or virtual care has proven uh, to be a, a very effective um, tool and it plays a key role in helping to provide access to care. You know, to your earlier comment, we actually at Blue Cross have covered telehealth for almost 20 years, believe it or not, right? But there was hardly um much of any use to any degree fast forward to march april may june of 2020 and we saw our telehealth utilization skyrocket 7500 percent you know just in a in a matter of weeks in a matter of months and we've continued to see telehealth even being leveraged even more so throughout the course of the pandemic what from our experience, what we observed was that um, telehealth seemed to be uh, utilized more to help provide for mental health and primary care access. About 80% of the visits that we have um, experienced so far through telehealth has been for primary and uh, mental health services, which is critically important, um, not only in the state of North Carolina, but you know, in many states, you know, where a pretty decent amount of the population live in more rural areas of the state. And what telehealth has shown is that we can actually deliver care more effectively, more timely, you know, uh, particularly in those areas where there is uh, very low of um, access to um, healthcare services. Carl. Hey, good morning. Um, you've got such an illustrious background and, and, and you see things from a global perspective, but here in the United States, as you know, especially in the, in the South, childhood obesity and mental health issues are probably two of the most dynamic issues facing us today. As a healthcare provider, but also as a business uh, businessman in, in North Carolina, are these the only two issues that are the two biggest healthcare issues for kids today that we need to be focused on, or is there something else out there? Yeah, I, I, I would say that, um, you know, th those two pretty much rise to the top. I mean, there's no question about it. And unfortunately, um, I think what we, what we are observing as one of at least the near to medium term impacts of the um, pandemic is um, an escalation in uh, mental health conditions, um, as you can imagine. In fact, you know the published literature would suggest that you know the mental, the prevalence of uh, mental health uh, or behavioral health conditions is one in five. I actually believe that it's probably more than more like one in three, uh, because a lot of um, in a lot of instances it goes undiagnosed, right, until it results in uh, severe mental illness. So if you ask me what was, which is the number one, I would actually put mental health illness, you know, at the top of the list. 
And, and unfortunately, you know, that is one area where even prior to the pandemic, we've struggled with respect to being able to provide access. There's just not enough mental health practitioners, you know, um, pretty much anywhere in the country. This is, this is actually uh, prevalent across, you know, the countries. So I, I would say that that, that, that is probably um, our number one, when I think about medium to long-term impacts, you know, concerns that we have. Mm -hmm. What, how has this last two years, right, impacted the mental, the emotional, and not just the physical health and well-being of all of us, but particularly for the next generations coming behind us? Thank you. Let me just take a second uh, on the mental health issue because it's come up more than once, of course, Dr. Satunde, as well as uh, then DHS Secretary Mandy Cohen was was pounding the table about mental health early in the public health crisis. Um, is there something, or rather, how do we support and meet that need legislatively? If you as a payer are willing to support it, if the providers are willing to do something about it, then, then what on a policy level needs to get done? You know, I, I so a couple of things. You know, first of all, um, addressing mental health parity and the destigmatization of mental health. You know, so those are a couple of challenges we have right now um, in terms of being able to deliver effective mental health services. So, you know, mental health parity, the destigmatization of, of mental health uh, conditions, I think is critically important. Um, we have to provide a more robust pipeline of mental health professionals than we have today. I mean, if, if you ask me uh, from my own personal opinion, I think, you know, one of the areas that we can come together, you know, as a coalition is really to um, increase the number of mental health practitioners, you know, training supports and so on, you know, offsetting tuition and, um, you know, uh, just ensuring that people that have a desire to um, attain the level of education where they can then in turn provide uh, mental health uh, services, I think is another area of opportunity. And I think we should incentivize mental health professionals to practice in a more underserved and more underprivileged uh, parts of the state, um, allow them to practice at the highest levels of their licensure. Um, so those are just you know, a couple of what I've described as um, meaningful, practical you know, uh, policy areas that can be addressed. Leslie? Interesting that the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation has put a huge emphasis on racial equity funding. And oh, yeah. there is ample data to suggest there are dramatic differences based on race and ethnicity in terms of healthcare outcomes. Uh, blacks on average live four, four years less than whites. Yeah. Uh, during the pandemic, you've seen both the, the Latinx community and the black community really suffer disproportionately in terms of infections and hospitalizations and deaths. I'm wondering what you see that you find to be the most compelling data for an intentional emphasis on addressing racial equity gaps in healthcare. You know, so we've known about um, issues around uh, health equity. I often describe it as a lack thereof, 
um, you know, with respect to, you know, uh, predominantly more so a minority, you know, underserved, underprivileged, um, you know, marginalized uh, communities. You know, what has become even more evident as a result of the pandemic, the, the pandemic has actually shone a light um, on the severity and the depth of these health inequities, even more so than many people, including people my, like myself, realize. And I think, you know, as we look forward, um, coming on the back end of, of this pandemic, we have to take those lessons learned and really think differently about how we address those social drivers of health that impact one's health and well-being. You know, whether it's with respect to housing, uh, whether it's respect, with respect to uh, providing jobs, whether it's with respect to addressing food insecurity and ensuring that people have access to fresh food, vegetables, and so on within a reasonable distance of wherever they might live or work, and whether it's with respect to addressing social, social isolation. And now we also have to address bandwidth because now we are all acutely aware of how important or critically important it is, you know, to be able to leverage technology and tools so that we can provide, you know, better access um, to care. And we, we literally, we've got 30 seconds left, so it's not fair to bring this up, but you've also, and not to put words in your mouth, but sir, you've also said that, that, that education is a determinant of health and overall overall health and quality of life? Sure. Yeah, education clearly has a direct correlation. There are many studies that have demonstrated this with improving um, one's health and well-being. You know, education leads to better health literacy uh, in most cases. It leads to yep. better jobs. It leads to access to better uh, health care coverage. It leads to access to uh, better care. It leads to, it leads to um, increased life expectancy right. and so on. So the, there is no question at all that education and healthcare are okay. interwoven. Okay. I, sorry to interrupt you, sir. I wish we had more time, but I'm, we'll have you. Please come back when you are well past any immediate uh, pandemic issues, but best of luck going forward, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Leslie, good to see you. Carl, thank you. Until next week, I'm Chris Wood. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.